Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The troubles in Venezuela, decades in the making, have reached a breaking point. As widely reported, the country is in crisis. Millions of Venezuelans have left. Millions more are without basic food and medicine. And two men are fighting for power. Today, where we live, we learn more about what's happening in Venezuela and how its instability affects Latin America. Should the U.S. play a role in a solution? You can join us. The number 860-275-7266. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live uh, to get a better idea of what's happening on the ground in Venezuela. Uh, Joining the show uh, by phone is Scott Smith. He's an Associated Press correspondent based in Caracas. Scott, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Uh, we understand uh, tomorrow is actually a significant date when we look at what's been happening in Venezuela, uh, revolving around uh, humanitarian aid and the opposition leader, Juan Guaido. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, well, um, as you say, tomorrow is an important date. Um, uh, Juan Guaido, who is the uh, sort of self-proclaimed interim president who's risen to challenge uh, President Nicolas Maduro uh, set tomorrow as a date for bringing in humanitarian aid, primarily from the United States and some other countries, um, which has been um, for several days, uh, a week or longer now, stored on the border in, in Colombia and and also in um, some other bordering countries. Um, President Nicolas Maduro refuses to let this in. He says this is you know part of a, a, a U.S. coup plot to oust him from power. Um, however, um, opposition leader Wang Guaido says that uh, they're going to bring it in, and tomorrow is the day they're going to move it in. So it's really um, sort of uh, forming a, a showdown between these two men who both claim the presidency of Venezuela. Can you tell us more about Juan uh, Guaido uh, and a little bit about why he has named himself interim president? Yeah, Juan Guaido is... Uh, a deputy in the National Assembly, basically Venezuela's Congress, and um, it, he was named the president of the Congress, the National Assembly, in January, just after the new year started. And um, there's been a long battle, certainly, for control of Venezuela. And uh, basically, in in January, Juan Guaido uh, rose to prominence and called for massive street protests and asked people to show their support for him. And in, uh, on January 23rd, which is a historically significant date uh, for Venezuela, he uh, called a mass protest and surrounded by thousands, tens of thousands of supporters um, in a wide avenue in Caracas, declared that he is going to assert his right to the presidency um, of Venezuela, saying that President Nicolas Maduro um, illegitimately holds the presidency, um, which, according to Wido, gives gives him the constitutional right to um, establish a transitory, a transitional government and call for new elections in Venezuela. So that's how uh, Juan Guaido was really uh, uh, a really unknown figure 
although in, in the Congress, and, and really has become sort of a rising star in the opposition movement and rallied lots of support by uh, Venezuelans who are eager for change. Uh, you mentioned uh, Venezuelans are eager for change. So in terms of this uh, power uh, struggle that's going on now in Venezuela, we started the show talking about the fact that uh, U.S. and other countries are sending humanitarian aid. Why has it gotten so bad there uh, in the fact that people don't have enough food? And are many Venezuelans blaming President Maduro for that? Yeah, this is a, a, a crisis that's been years in the making. Um, depends certainly who you ask, but the critics of, of Maduro um, blame Maduro and his predecessor, uh, Hugo Chavez, a charismatic uh, Venezuelan president who died of cancer um, about six, seven years ago, 2013, um, and um, basically launched a socialist revolution in Venezuela. Um, remember, too, that Venezuela is a... Uh, oil-producing country, and in recent years, the price of oil has uh, sort of fallen. Um, big debts incurred by the Chavez uh, government uh, are now coming to haunt them. Um, and basically, it's been sort of a, a forming, growing standoff uh, with the United States, which really opposes uh, Maduro's socialist uh, policies, and they've implied, applied sanctions against Venezuela. Um, and the economy is collapsing. There's been just a, a huge move by uh, Chavez and, and Maduro, who picked up on those policies to nationalize um, all of the major uh, industry. And it's just been a collapsing situation. So today, uh, for example, it's really difficult to find basic food um, uh, and medicine, um, antibiotics even. Aspirin is difficult to find in, in pharmacies here. And uh, people are really struggling. And so it's sort of reached ahead at this point. And so politically and in terms of the humanitarian crisis, it's really sort of peaking at this moment. This is where we live. Uh, with us by phone is Scott Smith, Associated Press Correspondent based in Caracas, Venezuela, as we spend uh, part of our show today uh, trying to understand why Venezuela is in crisis. Uh, you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. Uh, I wanted to ask a little bit more, Scott, in terms of uh, you know how Venezuelans see uh, the words of President Trump, uh, the fact that these latest sanctions that are impacting, I guess, the main uh, oil company in uh, Venezuela. Um, do they see the U.S. as being a force that can help them, or are they concerned that the U.S. is only in it for themselves in some way? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it depends who you ask. Um, there's a lot of Venezuelans who are, are sick of the, the political climate and the crisis that they're living in, having trouble finding basic goods, as I mentioned. And they are eager to have the United States um, uh, lend a hand and, and remove Maduro from office. There are people, in fact, you talk to uh, who are not shy in saying that they are eager for the Marines to come in and remove Maduro and his administration. Um, certainly, you know, anytime there's a large street protest, I go out and um, I talk to people on the other side of the story. Uh, there are certainly supporters of Maduro people who are diehard Chavistas, as they're called, and following in the, uh, the footsteps of uh, Hugo Chavez. And they do believe that the United States is an imperialist power, and this is a, a, a storyline that Maduro uh, repeats again and again whenever he, he's on television and talking, that you know, the United States is only interested in coming in and taking advantage of Venezuela's oil um, in its own backyard here. Um, they point to other 
coups that the United States has uh, led, military invasions in Latin America. You know, uh, there's certainly a documented long history of American uh, U.S. involvement in Latin American countries and regime change. Um, Maduro also points to recent examples in, you know, the Middle East, Iraq, uh, Libya, and, you know, and, and warns that he's, this is, you know, the United States comes in, there's going to be blood on, on Trump's hands, and this is going to be the next, you know, Latin America's version of Vietnam. Uh, we talked about the contested election uh, and, in fact, that Juan Guaido uh, was a, a leader in the National Assembly. Uh, if we could learn a little bit more of what happened after that we, from President Maduro actually coming up with his own National Assembly and stacking loyalists uh, to its own Supreme Court. Yeah, it's interesting. So primarily the, the only um, institution of government that is not controlled by President Maduro is the National Assembly. It's dominated by opposition members, and as I said, Juan Guaido is the president of that. But yeah, the 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 Elections Council in Venezuela is is controlled by um, uh, Maduro loyalists. Uh, the Supreme Court is as well. And and in fact, yeah, two years ago, um, out of frustration that the National Assembly was not approving Maduro's policies. He, he, he created a national constituent assembly, which is basically, you know, formed of chavistas, people who are loyal to Maduro, and created really a sort of a second legislative body in the country that historically has, you know, had just the one national assembly. So he created this constituent assembly, which um, he now uses as his, his Congress to uh, outmaneuver his opposition um, folks and basically passes all the policies that he wants through the constituent assembly. So not only do we have uh, sort of two presidents, uh, people claiming presidency at this point, but there's also two congresses. Um, and, you know, you go down the line, uh, there's also a, an exiled Supreme Court, um, people that are opposed to Maduro who are basically, you know, um, living outside of the country but still claim to be Venezuela's legitimate uh, Supreme Court. Uh, we talked about the U.S. role uh, earlier, um, again, with sanctions and the rhetoric coming from uh, the U.S. administration. But uh, how much of a role did the U.S. play in elevating uh, Juan Guaido, if at all? Well, certainly uh, the United States, the Trump administration, um, and his advisors were among the first when Guaido announced that he's assuming presidential powers. Um, Donald Trump uh, initially, you know, was one of, among the first, if not the first, to say, yes, I, I recognize uh, Juan Guaido. Um, and they quickly came out and said, you know, we will support Juan Guaido um, with humanitarian aid. And sure enough, it showed up uh, on the border of Colombia. Um, more is coming in, uh, we understand. And, you know, at this point now, uh, it's not just the United States. Certainly there are I, I, I've sort of lost count at this point, but at least 50 other countries, primarily, you know, uh, conservative countries in Latin America, Colombia, Brazil, among the, the two leading members, um, and several European countries uh, that that have thrown their support behind Juan Guaido and his bid to oust uh, President Maduro. You know, for his part, he also has supporters. The backers of Maduro and, and his government are certainly Russia, which is heavily invested in Venezuela and um sort of uh, also at, at odds with the United States, um, which is an interesting uh, ally of, of Venezuela. The Chinese also are heavily invested in, in Venezuela and supporting Maduro. Um, so he's not without his supporters as well. Uh, 
Uh, you know, uh, we're talking about, uh, again, this humanitarian aid that's coming in. Uh, Russia has also been sending aid, which Maduro has accepted because they've been longtime allies. That's right. Um, um, just we learned just uh, just just this week, in fact, that Russia has, um, you know, sent in um, several tons of uh, emergency supplies. Um, Maduro all along, in, you know, has refused to allow in the U.S. Uh, humanitarian aid um, obviously um, considers the United States, you know, an enemy and, and, and colonial power trying to take over Venezuela. Um, and he also says, you know, we're not going to accept U.S. aid. We're not a country of beggars. Um, and in fact, says that uh, Venezuela is, is going to accept aid from Russia, but is going to pay for it. So um, we'll see how that, that plays out. And Scott, why not uh, the U.N. or Red Cross? Why are they not uh, involved? Yeah, um, I think at this point so far, I mean, you know, Maduro has not asked for help. Again, he's uh, you know, very proud. And Venezuela, for the last couple of years, the crisis has gotten worse and people struggle to get by. Has created its own um, system of, you know, um, help. Uh, about every month or six weeks, uh, residents here um, can buy boxes of subsidized food, um, you know, basic staples, rice, cooking oil, um, a bit of protein, perhaps canned tuna, things like this. Um, so Maduro says, you know, we don't we don't need uh, help. We're able to provide um, for our own people, and thank you very much. We don't want your help. And then lastly, Scott, uh, when we think about, uh, again, this power struggle and uh, what will happen uh, with uh, the uh, opposition leader heading to the border, trying to bring in aid from the U.S. and other uh, countries that have uh, pretty much said they don't see uh, President Maduro as legitimate, uh, what is the role of the military uh, and are they still loyal to Maduro? Yeah, the, the military in Venezuela is really the linchpin to any potential change of uh, leadership. Um, at this point, the military and certainly the chief uh, uh, officers in the military have remained steadfastly behind Maduro. Um, certainly, you know, the military obviously controls the power. They have the weapons and the, uh, the, the troops to, to suppress any uprising that happens, and they, they've done that um, in recent weeks. And that's something that Juan Guaido has really lobbied. When he initially came out, he said, you know, I need the support of Venezuela's people. I need you to show your support. And he says, I, I also need the military. If this is going to happen, we, the military um, needs to come behind. He, he's, uh, he and the um, opposition-controlled uh, National Assembly have um, worked on legislation to offer amnesty um, to any military members who uh, – you know, reject Maduro and, and support their bid to change the administration. And But at, at this point, we've seen a few sort of isolated cases of uh, defectors, people who are leaving the military, but um, not a critical mass at this point. Um, it started to show that, that, that throwing their weight behind um, Juan Guaido and, and turning their back on Maduro. So that's certainly a key player in this, in this uh, scenario that we're all watching very closely. Scott Smith, again, is a correspondent with the Associated Press, uh, joining us today from Caracas, Venezuela. Uh, thank you, Scott. 
Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll talk to a University of Hartford professor who has family roots in Venezuela. We'll learn more about how the country ended up in the situation it finds itself in today. And we'll also hear from a Venezuelan native who now lives in New Haven, Connecticut. You can join us, too, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've heard of Hugo Chavez. He was Venezuela's president from 1999 until his death in 2013. How does his time uh, as leader impact the situation Venezuela finds itself in today? Or can its instability be traced further back? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Coming up, we'll talk with a Connecticut resident who grew up in Venezuela. But for more historical context, joining me now in studio is Dr. Marco Cupolo, Associate Professor and Director of the Hispanic Studies Program at the University of Hartford. Dr. Cupolo, welcome to the show. Thank you. So uh, we were uh, getting a little bit of uh, finding out what's happening on the ground uh, in recent weeks. But tell us, if we go uh, back in time, when we think about Venezuela again as a, an oil-rich nation, uh, once very prosperous, when was it at its peak and when things were going well for the country? Well, Venezuela has a very long history as an oil country. Probably, actually, it is the most uh, old oil country in uh, in the hemisphere. Probably, uh, compared to the United States, the only one, and Mexico, actually. Uh, but Venezuela was um, was a, a big change in the 2030s of uh, the, uh, the 20th century when Venezuela started to be an oil country. And it was a huge change because before that, Venezuela actually was a poor country. So that was the main uh, spring, you know, moving, changing completely the economy and society of Venezuela was a very fast change and a very like one, which lasted a lot. And that took Venezuela between the 10 most richest country in the world, probably in the 50s. And it was a very long cycle and the first sign of uh, weakness real weakness became evident in the, se- in the 90 at the end of the 70 and it became very clear in 1983 which at that time a shocking uh, devaluation for Venezuela what uh, happened then at the time uh, the bolivar the venezuelan currency was devalued significantly uh, and uh, suddenly and uh, nobody expected that that was uh, the consequence of uh, um, investors and uh, Venezuelan moving uh, their money ab- ab- abroad. And so the, the country had to, uh, the, the central bank had to close the exchange for several days. They reopened it with a sort of control on the exchange of the Bolivia. The Bolivia. That was the beginning, but wasn't so bad. Uh, r- uh, after that, in 1985-96, was the first fall of uh, oil prices after the boom of the 70s, and that was a very uh, sharp one. Uh, after that, in 1999, for the first time, the government of uh, Calandre Perez, who was at, at the second presidential mandate, tried an, an, IMF regi- an economic adjustment with uh, the support of the IMF, 
And the reaction was the famous Caracas riots against uh, the, this measure, but mainly against the sudden uh, uh, increase of prices and inflation for the first time at that level in, uh, in, uh, in Venezuela. Um, the president, they kept, they were able to control the riots, but three, year, three years later, we have for the first time Chavez. Mm who uh, led uh, a, an, a, an attempted coup against the government. This was in uh, 1992? 1992, mm-hmm. and that was the first time. He failed. There was a second uh, coup d'etat supported by Chavez, by Jay, and the same, he failed. But at that time, of course, we have a very unstable economic situation, which is going in parallel with a very unstable political situation that make Venezuelan society, economy, uh, more shaken, I would say. And that was the beginning of a a time of uncertainties with peaks of inflation. Actually, the the president of Venezuela was impeached. He went to jail. uh, Another president uh, was elected, uh, uh, was Caldera, another very experienced uh, political um, politician of Venezuela. He he already was president in the the 70s, the same Calandre Perez. Uh, Tell us more about Hugo Chavez. Uh, What was his promise uh, that uh, obviously you mentioned the currency had been devalued, there was a hyperinflation. Uh, So when people when people heard of Hugo Chavez, what was his what what were what why did people where were they drawn to him? What were the promises that he made? Just just a question. Just one thing. At, at the time, we had a high inflation. We didn't have a hyperinflation. That's in the going lines. on now. Yeah, now yeah. it's a really hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. So Chavez started in, the, in 30 seconds. <laughs> TV <laughs> you have message. more. You have more than 30 <laughs> yeah. seconds. In the 30 seconds, he was able to uh, say something on TV, and suddenly after the coup d'etat uh, in 1992, and he became a leader, practically. He became a, a person uh, known in, the, in, uh, in Venezuela. And... Uh, at the beginning, actually, it wasn't very clear that he was a leftist mm-hmm. leader. He was more like a nationalistic, Bolivarian, in some aspect, very generally speaking, uh, kind of um, new actor in uh, the political scene of Venezuela. Later, especially after his election in 1998, when he was for the first time candidate for the presidency, he uh, started to move slowly through, not slowly, I would say, moved to some left, through some leftist position, especially because around him he had people coming from the old uh, Venezuelan left. But after the 2002 coup against him, really he radicalized that. Uh, and before, a little before that, and that especially after, he became more and more uh, radical, leftist, more socialist-oriented, and he looked for the support of Cuba, of course. Mm-hmm. Then was we see the Chavez, uh, uh, like uh, the radical uh, socialist uh, leftist um, leader in, uh, in, the, in, la- in Venezuela and in Latin America, actually. Um, so what changed under his leadership uh, after 2002? How did the country change? The country changed... Um, with a, a very, they, they, the big change, I would say, that's my opinion, is uh, making of a Bolivar, of Bolivarian ideas and leftist ideas 
one thing. This is new in Venezuela. We had an interpretation of Bolivar and uh, a very crucial one in making the national identity of the country. But we have some, we had some leftist interpretation, but usually Bolivar was more seen as a kind of uh, ideology for uh, the conservative right of our, or, um, um, of uh, Venezuelan politics. So this is, has been a big change for Venezuela, for the interpretation of Bolivar in Venezuela and outside Venezuela. At the same time, it's being more and more closer to Cuba. That has been another big move in, inter in the international arena. Since 2002, the, the presence of uh, Cubans in Venezuela has been more and more important, in some aspect even crucial. In studio with me is Dr. Marco Cupolo, Associate Professor and Director of the Hispanic Studies Program at the University of Hartford. As we learn a little bit of history of Venezuela, as we're talking about the crisis that the country faces today. Uh, also joining us by phone is Domingo Medina, who actually lives in New Haven, Connecticut. He was born in Caracas. Uh, Domingo, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, we were listening to the professor uh, talk about um, how uh, Chavez came to power, the things that uh, caused uh, unrest but also change in uh, Venezuela. What do you remember from growing up there? Listen, uh, when Chavez came into power in 1999, uh, even after he uh, did uh, the attempt coup uh, against uh, Carlos Andres Perez, there was a lot of excitement because he was uh, breaking, uh, he was trying to break up basically a bipartisan type of system uh, where you had a, a lot of um, of need to have a much more stable economy. And this guy came in and promising, you know, reforms, promising to uh, equalize uh, society, to minimize poverty, you know, to review the Constitution. And there was a lot of excitement that people were able to participate and, and basically review the Constitution and make it a much more egalitarian for everybody and so there was a lot of promises and and, and mostly he was speaking to to a crowd uh, that felt neglected and marginalized for a long long time now uh, you know uh, this is the discourse that was bringing in uh, and that were people buying into it and of course he won the elections fairly and square and they had a uh, the support not only of the venezuelan people but you know uh, of the um, economic systems and the, even the news and the, uh, and like the professor said you know there was no mentioning of any socialism uh, or communism or uh, he was more a um, very populist type uh, uh, of leader uh, that where everybody was excited to see what's happening and at the time you know he benefited for a huge amount of money that came from the oil industry so he had all the conditions to make Venezuela a much better country uh, in the beginning uh, and then that, the, you know, the, the promise didn't happen. Uh, Dr. Cupolo, uh, Domingo mentioned uh, the fact that there's a lot of money coming in. Uh, so what did Chavez do with that? Well, the money coming in after 2002, when uh, Chavez started to his presidential mandates, uh, the country was still having very low oil prices. Now, the, after the 2002 coup, Chavez became popular, first of all, because he was able to take advantage of this uh, failed coup. He became stronger politically. People really supported, especially military, they helped him. And after, he was extremely liked. 
he gets this very long cycle of very high uh, oil prices, which lasted until 2013, practically. Uh, not only that, but he also gets some, a huge, some very generous credit line from China, especially from China, and from a big support from Russia. Yeah. And he started to export oil to China, Russia, India, and uh, was a very a lot of money. And he invested that. He invested a lot in uh, social, uh, yeah, social uh, help for poor people. That was a very smart move, but was a very expensive one. Yeah. And uh, he now the point is keeping that. Probably yeah. the the big illusion, not only of Chavez, of many Ital um, Venezuelan politicians, is that this cycle are going to last forever. Yeah. But inevitably, there are some cycle of oil prices. Yeah. And it ended at uh, 2013. It was a very good shot. But I would say even with this price, Venezuela could be fine, more or less. Yeah. But with the huge amount of debt accumulated yeah. through that investment, now it's really a very dire straight situation. Mm. There are no, no exits because mm. there is no money. Uh, Domingo, we've we've seen the number uh, reported from the UN that more than three million Venezuelans have left the country. You're one of them. Why did you leave? Listen, um, I I'm come. I, I, you know, um, I basically am part of a not so recent uh, uh, migration. I used to work for a non for profit in Venezuela uh, in in conservation. I, I used to work with indigenous people and peasants in rainforest environment and. Uh, uh, and I started working basically on indigenous land rights. Uh, this was a promise by uh, Chavez in, in, the, in the new constitution in 1999, uh, where uh, people's, uh, indigenous people's rights were going to be recognized and actually were recognized on paper. Uh, so I was out there, you know, helping translate mental maps to, you know, geographical maps uh, that they could be presented uh, as a proposal for the, for, the, for the government to be recognized. Uh, and 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 to, today there hasn't been any meter square of land uh, recognized for indigenous people at all. So that ha that's how I started, and uh, and, and I was working, uh, and what the, the the conditions of work uh, basically uh, started to degrade because um, the government started to intervene in the type of uh, of funding that we could receive, uh, and then they were infiltrating a lot of the communities there in terms of uh, you know politicizing them. Dividing them, uh, providing them resources, um, you know, uh, and sometimes coercing them to the point that it was very difficult to work with communities. And, and for me, it became too costly um, uh, to work there. And uh, and then I ended up uh, here in New Haven with my wife that uh, that works here. Um, but um, so uh, that was the condition for me on a personal basis. I just don't want in case. What I want to say is that, you know, when you have a massive amount of people moving out of a country, nobody really wants to migrate. The condition has to be very difficult uh, for people to make a decision to leave their own country, knowing that outside you're, you don't know what you're going to find. You know, be, if you're going to be well-received, you're going to find a job, if you're going to have where to stay. Uh, so for me, it's a major indicator that, uh, of desperation uh, that look at people basically are looking to survive. Um, so, um, and that's what we're seeing right now, you know, here in Connecticut with, you know, uh, uh, I, you know, I haven't, I really didn't have 
very, very few Venezuelans that I knew. Now I basically find many of them around in the town, and we're trying to help each other and to position ourselves. Uh, but I can't imagine the amount of people that are moving to Colombia, that are moving to Brazil, to Peru, to Ecuador by foot, uh, because, of course, they don't have the means to travel elsewhere, uh, and the only means is their legs, the two legs and the, and the feet. And, and they're creating a major pressure in this other uh, country to be able to host them and to attend them and to provide them with aid. Um, so it's very, very critical what's happening right now. Uh, Dr. Cupolo, uh, we talked about Chavez a little bit. I'm curious about uh, the ascent of uh, Nicolas Maduro. If you could uh, uh, fill in that part of the story for us and uh, in the beginning, um, how he was viewed and uh, since uh, that time, what has happened? Well, um, uh, Chavez was essentially a military man. And he had that kind of style in making politics, etc. Maduro is different. He come from uh, um, the, a very long experience in the. Uh, well, he now is a very long. He has been a, a chavista supporter of Chavez for a long time. But before that, he was his job. He was a, a bus driver of uh, the company of um, transportation of uh, Caracas uh, subway. And he has a long experience like uh, um, a union ma- leader. And it's, you can see that. He's very good in negotiation with somebody, and uh, like a union leader. But he doesn't have absolutely the, lead, the, the charismatic power of Chavez. And that has been, uh, it's been very clear during the election. Uh, people, uh, even Chavez, uh, they say, okay, he's not Chavez, but he's the one Chavez told us to vote for. So. Uh, Maduro became uh, the president of Venezuela, but he's, uh, he doesn't have the popularity of uh, Chavez, never had it. And also, uh, even worse is that he is not pop- was uh, not popular in a time of crisis because he practically inherited this crisis from, uh, the, from the time of Chavez. Uh, and he has been really, I understand, <laughs> bad at the job. I mean, he... I mean, this this crisis was coming now. Practically, he but even Chavez before him are blaming uh, some kind of a war against Venezuela and then the, especially against the the day revolution. But there are a lot of mistakes mm-hmm. in uh, the economic economic policy of uh, this administration, the Chavez one, and uh, uh, the Maduro one. And I would like probably this a surprise telling this for many, but this has practically almost the same mistakes that previous government of Venezuela made. But when the country had a much healthier com- uh, economy, the problem is now they're keeping doing the same mistake in a very terrible situation, which is keeping some control on price, control of uh, foreign exchange, control on uh, right of interest. In this way, there are no, s- no exits for uh, for the socialists or capitalists, whatever they want to say. There are no way of going, uh, um, having some solution for the current uh, in situation of Venezuela. 
Uh, this is where we live. And today with me, Dr. Marco Cupolo, Associate Professor and Director of the Hispanic Studies Program at the University of Hartford. And on the phone, Domingo Medina, a New Haven resident who was born in Caracas, as we focus in on uh, why Venezuela is in crisis today. Uh, Domingo, I did want to ask you, uh, what do you think about what's happening on the ground today, this power struggle between these two men? Do you see a path forward for your country? Listen, um, we, there's a standoff. Uh, there's a major standoff. Uh, the pressure is up. Uh, there's going to be today uh, uh, a big, big event, uh, a concert on the border of Colombia and Venezuela from the, on the Colombian side um, to basically, uh, you know, for human aid. Uh, there's a lot of containers and food and aid that has come from different countries waiting to be able to get into the country through the border. Also in the south in Brazil, also, there's a lot of aid. Um, it, um, Maduro don't want uh, the aid to come in. Uh, they feel somehow that uh, it's not needed, that this is just a limosna, basically petty, uh, uh, petty money, and that it's not needed. And, and, they, and on the other side, there's a recognition by everybody that there's a lot of uh, uh, disnutrition, there's a lot of need for basic treatment for medicines, for diabetes, for asthma, for salmonella, malaria, tuberculosis. Uh, you know, there's uh, 300,000 uh, uh, people that are in a critical, critical condition that if they are not attended, they are in the, in the risk of, of dying. Um, so um, Guaido has basically uh, has said that, the, you know, the humanitarian aid is going to come in on the 23rd. That means tomorrow. Uh, the, there's, a, there's a bridge that crosses the border between Colombia and Venezuela where the Venezuelan government has put containers to block the entrance. Um, so uh, here is always going to be dependent whether the militaries, the ones that are going to be facing the, the, the crowd, are going to allow for the humanitarian aid to, to come in or not. Maduro won't be there up front. Diosdado Cabello won't be there. They're going to be sending their troops in front to see uh, what they're going to do. So, you know, we are all concerned because um, how the militaries right now are going to respond is whether they try to follow the Constitution or they want to maintain this regime uh, that is a totalitarian regime. Um, so there's a lot of concern that, you know, uh, that things are not going to go smooth. What's true is that people don't want bloodshed, people don't want conflict, uh, for 20 years, you know, people have demonstrated that they want to, to make changes democratically in a fair basis under a constitution that is our social contract uh, 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 for us. And we want to avoid any type of conflict. People are out there willing to, to aid, willing to volunteer, to even supply this aid by foot, even to walk the bridge and find it wherever it's needed and bring it home. Um, so uh, it, it's, a, it's a power play right now. And, uh, and uh, the Guaido is backed up by a lot of uh, national uh, and international organizations. And, uh, uh, and what Maduro has is the militaries. And he has been very clever in trying to keep them isolated, you know, in, in their barracks uh, without uh, having information at all what's happening. Uh, as you know, uh, there's no alternative media right now in Venezuela. The only thing you can find information is through YouTube or WhatsApp or these networks that people have done with. But, you know, if you are in a barrack and a military, you don't get to listen to what's happening out there. You only listen to the voice of your commander in chief.
And so uh, we are very much concerned about that. And Domingo, uh, when we heard from the reporter earlier uh, talking about uh, suspicions about U.S. involvement, uh, looking at history uh, and how U.S. was involved in uh, uh, different uh, interventions and coups, uh, some critics would say that the U.S. is causing uh, some of the struggles on the ground um, and this power struggle. What would you say to them? Wow. Uh, yeah, I I hear this uh, everywhere, and even there's uh, going to be some demonstration here in the, the, the Sunday. Uh, listen, uh, I grew up uh, in learning and knowing about the foreign relationship of the U.S. with many, many countries. Uh, and we, we know about the atrocities. Uh, we know about the, the, uh, how a dictatorship has been handled over the years. What I want to make sure is that, uh, you know, we are in a world order that we can't control of. You know, you have powers out there. There are interests out there. And it comes from the U.S., comes from China, comes from Russia, comes from many countries. And right now, if we only tend to look at this in a dichotomous way of left and right, capitalist or socialist, we are missing the whole point. If the Venezuelans have agency. The Venezuelan people put Chavez there. The Venezuelan people put Maduro there, and now they don't want them there, and they want them out. Uh, and it took a lot of lobbying inside of the country and outside of the country to make, you know, to be able to shed light on what was happening in the country to find the support. Uh, and the support that had to, had to come from individual governments, because not even the United Nations uh, as an organization or the uh, Organization of American States were uh, eager to jump into recognizing that what we were dealing with was a dictatorship. Um, so uh, it's the Venezuelan people that want, that want to change, negate that, and say that this is just the intervention of the United States. It's saying that, you know, uh, 30 million people, uh, you know, don't know what they're doing and they're manipulated. You know, we are not stupid. We are highly educated people. We, want to have, we have one of the highest social uh, capital uh, um, percentage of, of, of people in the country, in the whole Latin America. The oil allows us to go and study not only in Venezuela but uh, outside. So, you know, we are uh, uh, highly trained uh, uh, people that, you know, recognize when, you know, your social contract, your constitution is being violated. And then when you want to have stable institution and stable economy to be able to grow in a powerful way and be able to participate in your own future. When you can't have those opportunities, you want to change the model. And when um, the, 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 the constitution, when the law, when the institutions are not there to protect you, what are you left with? You are left with trying to make change in a democratic way, but you need help from outside. And Domingo, oh, we're, we're short on time. I wanted to go yeah. back to our in-studio guest, Dr. Marco Cupolo, again, Associate Professor and Director of the Hispanic Studies Program at the University of Hartford. Uh, Dr. Cupolo, um, we had mentioned uh, so uh, many uh, have left Venezuela. Um, you know, in, in our maybe in the last couple of, of minutes we have for this segment, uh, what, what do you see as a, a path forward again for this country um, in terms of trying to turn around? Is it, is it uh, too late? Uh, it's not too late, I believe. Certainly, it's going to take time to recover because really like, the situation has been very deteriorated. But uh, I, I agree with Domingo in the sense that um, it's, it will be, we don't have to oversimplify the Venezuelan city. It looks like the, the oversimplify will be like a kind of... Uh, in technical terms, would be a kind of game on brinkmanship, on the edge between two sides, 
No, on one side Maduro, the other side Guaido, on one side Venezuela, on the other side United States. It looks like a, a kind of uh, con- um, contest, uh, context where uh, you see that, you know, something like the Cold War. Mm. We no longer have a, lo- a Cold War today. And Venezuela has not to be taken through or seen through this kind of uh, um, perception. We have many actors now playing in, uh, around Venezuela. And unfortunately, who is going to pay if something goes wrong is Venezuelan people. But there are Cubans, there are Chinese governments, Russian governments, United States, Europe. There are many immigrants from Europe in, uh, in Venezuela living there. And um, it's something much a little more complicated than just getting out from uh, an economic uh, very deteriorated situation. Uh, and Venezuela is true. I mean, Venezuela is a country with a lot of oil. Could be a, a big, huge advantage as it was in the past, but could be also a huge problem because it means a dispute on the crucial resource, energy resource of this century. Mm-hmm. We'll have to leave it there, but we thank you for coming in, Dr. Thank Marco you. Cupolo, Associate Professor and Director of the Hispanic Studies Program at the University of Hartford. Again, as uh, this story continues to play out in the headlines, it's good to have the context, so we appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me. Also, uh, Domingo Medina, thank you for, for calling in today. Thank you very much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to learn more about a new, ha- new London-based uh, group, rather, that highlights the art and culture of Central and South American countries and works specifically with school children. This is Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard about one country on a very diverse continent. In Connecticut, there's a nonprofit based in New London that celebrates Central and South American art and culture and serves as a bridge between artists and the Latino community, especially its children. For more, joining me in studio now is Lee Toth, board member of Expressiones, this nonprofit based in New London, Connecticut. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Lucy. So tell us about the nonprofit and why was it formed? Well, uh, it was founded by two South American immigrants, uh, Guido Garagachea and Jose Garagachea Ulloa, and we became a nonprofit in 2009. And the motivation is is to uh, bridge multicultural or to build multicultural bridges be, uh, through artistic and uh, educational endeavors. And we have a focus on children. And very dedicated to to teaching children. Initially, we started off with the Drop-In Learning Center in New London. They came in, and as we've evolved, we've become involved with the New London Public Schools. Um, what is unique about our program is we have artists come from South America and Central America, and these are professional bilingual artists, and they come now for a period of two to three months, and there's an apartment above the, the gallery. They they live there. They become involved in the community, and part of what they do is they, they work on their art for the time that they're there and have a solo exhibit at the end of their residency. But as part of their residency, they have a commitment to... Uh, 
to the community mm-hmm. and to community service. And they, uh, we have collaborated with the New London Public Schools in that they will go in and work, say, maybe with a, a, a teacher or, or an art teacher. They will develop a project, and at the end of the at the end of the time, they get to the. Recently, the artists have had the children's work displayed along with theirs mm-hmm. in the gallery, which is. Which is actually really cool. The kids, the kids love it. So you have artists uh, coming from Honduras and other places working <coughs> with uh, children in the community. And so, what has been some of the outcomes? Uh, they, uh, as far as like the, the outcomes, I think one of the things I want to be clear about is like we don't really these artists don't really teach art. They use art for the children to uh, learn how to express themselves, how to explore creativity, and how to problem solve. And just I want to see if I can quickly give an example of uh, a couple of these. One recently, one of the Honduran artists last fall that was here uh, brought in, taught the children about Mayans Mm -hmm. and about Mayans. So they're they're learning history and something, uh, obviously Mm -hmm. they think that's cool. And they and the and what he did was show them the, the different types of Mayan symbols for like their birth months. So so the children created the symbols. They embellished them to make them their own. They colored them, and then they were displayed. So they're learning all these different things. Uh, and one of the other other artists that we had from uh, Argentina also last fall. Uh, t- had children paint faces, but he just used three primary colors. And what he did was, what the kids learned was that they could make different colors with the three primary colors. So that it's not just about creating a piece of art, but it's also learning and exploring uh, with that. Now, uh, New London has a diverse uh, community, and so this is a nonprofit that's uh, funded primarily through community donations. How do you plan on expanding this work? We've got about a minute. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, we're trying. Well, uh, we're working really hard to get sustainable sustainable uh, grants. Uh, we're we're grants, donations, and volunteers, and that is our motivation: is to try and uh, expand through, you know, getting ourselves out there so people understand what we're doing. And mm-hmm. because it is, it's kinda, it, it is a very unique program, and we celebrate the diversity. We embrace it. And I think it, it, it's a great cultural exchange. Uh, uh, well, we'll definitely uh, send our listeners to our website, wmpr.org, slash where we live, to learn more about Expressiones. Uh, you do have a current artist in residence from Peru, so they can learn more about that. Yes. Uh, but uh, we do appreciate you coming in to tell us a little bit about the nonprofit and the work you're doing uh, in the southeast corner. Thank you so much, Lito. Thank you very much, Lucy. Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Thanks to our technical director, producer, uh, and Kion Wolf and Carmen Baskoff on the phones. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.